Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast. My name is Joey Schultz and I am joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, the guy whose life's mission is to finally locate Fibble Fit the Lost, it's Matt Morgan. Joey, we all know that Albert Einstein was a genius, but his brother Frank was a monster. Frank Einstein, Frank Einstein, Frankenstein, clever Matt. There that took is. me an embarrassingly long time to, to get, actually. I, I, I absolutely love that. It's a literature joke befitting of any English major. That was a joke grenade is what that was. It took a second. <laughs> Next, the guy who's happy to no longer be a 3-3 elk. That's Dana Roach. Uh, we're getting secret wear announcements pretty much every week. It seems like now we got one for Women's Day. We got one for Arena. Um, it's March. That means March Madness. So I'm hoping we get one with Control of the Court. Ball lightning and Arkham's whistle. I don't understand that joke at all. <laughs> it's March Madness. Sports and ball, Joey. Sports ball. S- way over my head. We're not here to talk about sports. We're here to talk about magic. This is the EDH Recast. EDH Rec is a deck building website that collects data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give that data just a little bit more context. Now, guys, this is episode 102. And you know that it's not within the rules to have 102 cards in your deck. So we're going to have to make two cuts. So Dana and Matt will be cut from the show, and I am going to be taking over solo. Is basically how I think this should go, right? I'm protesting that ruling. I've been waiting for that to happen for 100 episodes, to be honest. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Uh, So, yeah, this is really exciting for us to be on into the hundreds. And we have to give an enormous thanks to Josh LeQuay and the whole team at the Command Zone who are handling all the post-production work on the podcast for us. They have brought an amazing energy, verve, and style to the podcast that we are so excited to share. Uh, But they're not the only ones that we've got to thank. We also want to thank the wonderful sponsors that we have on EDHREC, and that is Card Kingdom. You can visit their site, cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC to show your support for EDHREC. Card Kingdom is one of the sites that provides up-to-date price information for all the card images on EDHREC. So if you find a card maybe on today's show that you think that you might want, you can actually click on one of those prices on EDHREC and it will take you right to Card Kingdom's online store so that you can pick that card right up. Or you can visit cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC directly if you would like to as well. Card Kingdom is my local game store here in Seattle and I just cannot recommend them enough. So check them out either through the links on EDHREC or once again, that is cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC. Joey, I, was, I and, was just holding up a Card Kingdom envelope. I placed an order last Friday and it was here today on Monday. And legendarily fast yeah. shipping is what they have too. Very famous in the card scene for a very good reason. Excellent, excellent store. And we're so happy that they are our sponsors. Uh, one more thing before we get to our main topic today. EDHREC also is ready to announce that we have a shop now. If you visit EDHREC and click on the cart icon on the top right-hand side of the website, it will take you to the EDHREC shop where you can purchase things like the EDHREC playmat or EDHREC shirts, EDHREC cast playmat as well. And we're excited to have more items such as card sleeves also coming up in the storefront in the future. So if you think that you might want to sport some gear from the best deck building site on the web, you can check out the shop on EDHREC's website right there. It's really exciting new development for us here too. A lot of cool things have been changing on EDHREC and we're so excited to share them with everyone. So now let's get to our main topic. Guys, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about how budgets statistically change your strategy. Indeed. But before we can actually get there, we have to explain a couple of things to contextualize that, basically. Before we talk about budget and how budget filters work, we actually have to explain EDHREC's filters in general. And 
As a quick disclaimer, filters are just without a doubt the absolute best way to use EDHREC. And when we, the three of us, personally use the site, it is almost always in conjunction with these filters. And there are three different types of filters that we can actually use. Dana, can you walk us through the first filter on EDHREC that we're able to use? So the first filter is advanced filters. And really what advanced filters do is they show you cards um, that are found with another card in a particular commander's deck. So uh, to use an example here, um, I have a Veil of the Nightclad deck. She's a commander that was in original Plane Chase set. Um, she is a wizard that has Intimidate and gives your creatures Intimidate. And she also deals a damage to your opponents whenever a creature you control leaves the battlefield. So she was in the original Ninja deck before Eureka was even a thing. And if you bring up Vela on EDH Rec, underneath Vela there'll be a bunch of different ninjas. Um, my Vela deck is an artifact-based deck. I wanted to build something in Demir. I wanted to build an artifact deck. It made sense to give artifact creatures Intimidate since they can basically not be blocked. So that was what I built. If you bring up Vela and you add like an artifact-centric card using uh, Tezzeret Master of the Bridge, for example, um, and put that under advanced filters, then all the cards you see underneath Vela are no longer ninjas. You see a bunch of artifact-centric cards that you would find in a deck along with that Tezzeret. Yeah, absolutely. These are a hugely useful way to actually specifically state, I want to take this deck in a different direction rather than the data that I'm already seeing here. So like you mentioned, there were all those ninjas on the Vela page, but that's not the direction that you wanted to take with the deck. And so rather than just looking at the page on its own merits, you can actually specifically tailor that data to only show you information from decks that also include specific cards. Or you can also use them for decks that exclude specific cards. So instead of saying, I specifically want to see Tezzeret, you can actually name a specific ninja, like Ninja of the Deep Hours, and you want to see information from decks that don't include that ninja, because you know that's not the strategy that you're going for. And you can mix and match those things as appropriate to tailor the data more specifically to you. Yeah, and I think on one of our first, um, or one of our very early episodes, um, one of our guests mentioned that was one of the ways he tried to filter out CEDH decks because he just wasn't looking to build anything that powerful. And if you put something like, like Mox Diamond as an exclusion, then he would exclude cards that you would generally find in the CEDH list. Or that might be a way for you to find right. the yep, competitive the list too. Sure. Exactly. So that's what makes them so useful because you can actually scope the data a little bit more uh, to the stuff that would be more generally useful for you and the deck that you specifically want. That's just one of the filters, but we also have theme filters. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about those? Definitely. So the theme filter is a way that you can filter out decks that only adhere to a certain theme. There's so many cards that tie into a certain type of deck that you might be wanting to run. Atraxa Praetor's Voice is kind of the, the most well-known deck as far as there are literally hundreds of ways that you can take Atraxa. Proliferate is a very, very open mechanic along with Voltron and whatever else you want to be doing. So if you go to Atraxa's page, you'll notice there's a theme section where you can pick any different number of themes, whether it's a Planeswalker, Super Friends type of deck, plus one, plus one counters, Infect. If you want to do Energy Tribal, you're able to do that. And what you can do with these themes is click on whatever type of theme you want to be running, and it will narrow everything down. So say you want to be playing Horror Tribal, for example. Well, if you click on that Horror Tribal theme, it's going to exclude all the decks that might qualify for a Super Friends theme, for example, or a Life Game theme. It just It's a way to narrow everything down so you're only looking at decks that are relevant to the specific theme you want to be running. And that also works for tribes. It does work for tribes. So say if you want to look 
at an elf tribal deck and somehow your commander also is really good at playing angels. I can't name a deck or a commander that would do that, but if it were ever there, you could look at specifically elf tribal decks versus angel tribal decks. And again, it takes out all the other decks that might be distracting you and, and giving you some skewed data. So it's only relevant data to what you're trying to, to discover. Well, you just mentioned elf tribal or angel tribal. Actually, a commander that comes to mind as an example of a, you know, a multivarious type of commander that you can take in many tribal directions would be Morophon the Boundless. There you which go. Has, like, you can take that in boundless directions. That's totally the point. But if you look at just Morophon's main EDH rec page, you'll see a mishmash of a whole bunch of different tribes on there, spruced in with a whole lot of changeling cards on that page too. So if you want to actually find a disparate tribe, those theme filters will assist you in automatically sculpting the data so that it's only showing you those specific uh, tribes. So using the filters on Morophon's page is actually one of the best ways to be able to engage with that commander because you already know the specific direction that you want to take it rather than leaving it infinite and boundless and stuff like that. Right, yeah. Morophon's basically just a tribal version of a track. So now that you bring it up, good call, Joseph. That's what we keep you around for. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. But that's just the second type of filter. The other type of filter that we have here on EDH Rec is the budget filter. And these are in the same sections as the theme filters that Matt just talked about. These are labeled very simply as cheap and expensive. And these can be used to show information for only the top 10 least expensive decks within the database or the top 10 most expensive decks within the database. Basically, it's a way of automatically fitting things within the budget that you know that you're going to be in. We have received questions in the past about the uh, budget filters and whether they can be set to a price threshold. We actually decided to go with the top 10%, you know, least expensive and top 10% most expensive because budget is kind of relative to specific commanders. There are some commanders that cost three cents and there are some commanders that cost $3 and there are some commanders that cost $30. So having an actual budget cap wasn't as practical to us as just showing us the uppermost and the lowest on those budget filters just to provide a big scan of things for people there. Uh, it's just been a bit more effective in general. So if you know that you're not going to stretch for the crazy expensive cards, then this is a way to help you find effective replacements just with one click. But here is when it brings us to the main topic of this show. We don't want to just talk about the fact that we have these filters. We actually want to examine how they impact gameplay. Our budgets can actually affect how we build our decks and how they play. The price of the cards that you have access to may actually, in some cases, change the inherent strategy of the deck. So today, we're going to be exploring how budget may actually change a deck's plan and looking at how the data actually shows those strategies moving to a different strategy when we use those budget filters. So what we're going to do is start off with our low budget filter when we are looking at the top 10% least expensive decks. Let's look through a couple of commanders and see how that filter will actually change the main strategy of the deck. Matt, take it away. So the first commander we're going to take a look at is Tasa Karlov. That is one of the Orzov legends that came out recently in the new Ravnica block. Tasa Karlov is two in Orzov colors, which is a white and a black, for 2-4 human advisor, legendary of course, and also reads, if a creature dying causes a triggered ability of a permanence you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time and also says creatures you control have vigilance and lifelink. So basically, Tasa Karlov is a death harmonicon. How many death triggers can we get? But also, the creatures having vigilance and lifelink is a very relevant piece of text that I think I undersold when I first saw it, but actually has come up to be very, very relevant. And, and specifically there, it's the creature tokens that get those abilities, not yeah, just creatures just in general. Tokens. 
Yes, good, good way to, to, to point that out. But when we look at Tasa Karlov's page, we see a bunch of cards like Kokusho the Evening Star, which shows up in 44% of all of Tasa Karlov decks, which actually is a pretty good synergy score of 27%. One of the more powerful things that Tasa can be doing in this deck is getting that death trigger from Kokusho. And, and let me read Kokusho real quick, because it's not exactly the most new card that has ever come around. But it is a really powerful one. <laughs> it is very, very powerful, yes. Yeah. So Kokusho the Evening Star is four black black for a 5-5 five, five legendary dragon spirit with flying. But the relevant text with Tasa Karlov is that when Kokusho Evening Star dies, each opponent loses five life and you gain life equal to the amount of life lost this way. So with Tasa Karlov out, you can only imagine what happens doubling that death trigger. So everybody loses five, then 10 life total. And then you just gain oodles and oodles of life. It's something very, very powerful. It's a great synergy, but it's not exactly the most cheap card anymore. I mean, it's it's been a while since Kokusho has, has seen a reprint. If we're using a budget Tasa deck, because we know that we can't afford a card like Kokusho, which is, you know, in the tens of dollars, if not 20s, those budget filters are a way for us to sculpt that data away and just check out you know, the lower budget Tesa decks. Yep. How does that change her strategy when we're not using cards like Kokusho anymore? What does happen on our page? So you actually see a lot of more recent cards that showed up in the same set, actually, that, that Tesa Karlov did. You see cards like Orzov Forcer and, and Ministrant of Obligation. Those are cards with afterlife where when they die, you get as many 1-1 spirit tokens as they had the afterlife. So afterlife one or afterlife two gives you one or two tokens. You see Orzov Enforcer going from 39% popularity, which is, you know, a fair number, to 76%, which is huge increase when you consider that we're going down to the budget cards. Minister of Obligation, same thing. It's just a, uh, it's three mana for a 2-1 cleric that has Afterlife 2. That card goes from 54% popularity in taste of Karlov decks to 82%. Doom to Center is another one that rises a significant amount from 31% to 73%. So you see all these kind of budget cards, some of these more recent commons and uncommons, suddenly shoot up because they do have good synergy with Tasa Karlov, even though they may not necessarily show up on the main page because they are drowned out by expensive cards like Kokusho the Evening Star. Indeed. So the strategy isn't just looping the Kokusho anymore or a powerful death ability in a singular creature. It actually seems to be a bit more of a token focus instead of just the individual creature. That's what it tends to turn into. Yeah. And there's some other cards that that kind of benefit from these more budget options. You have Vindictive Vampire, which is kind of like a blood artist type of effect, except it's four mana, but also has that, you know, whenever another creature you control dies, it deals one damage and you gain life. It's those types of cards that also jump up. So Vindictive Vampire, for example, goes from 49% to 79% popularity. Falcon Wrath Noble, another type of effect in that realm, 51 to 71%. And then Corpse Knight jumps up 20% from 24% to 44% popularity just by virtue of, of taking out all those expensive cards and only looking at kind of those budget that, like we said, the bottom 10% average deck costs. And these are the cards that kind of rise to the top. I absolutely love this. Like, Tesa is already a really cool commander for all of the amazing, like you mentioned, Death Harmonicon uh, triggers. But it really does shift away from the individual super expensive things that are really powerful when you loop them even just one at a time. If you get the Kokosho back and then it dies and you get the Kokosho back and then it dies and you can drain people out with just one creature. Here, when you're working on a smaller budget, the strategy changes from going with one creature to a whole bunch of them. You've actually moved into a token strategy that is a bit more along the aristocrats style. And that is actually a really big shift that will totally change the ways that you play that deck. Right. In the, in the standard 
filters and then obviously the, the more expensive filters, it's more about having that one big Coco Show type of effect. And then how else can you find it? There's obviously gonna be tutors, there's gonna be you know demonic tutor and all those types of effects in the more expensive versions. So maybe in the, the cheaper versions, what I think is the most relevant is there aren't those huge, huge haymaker effects, but you're going to find a plethora. You're going to find sheer quantity of these types of effects versus just the one big one that you are going to focus on more. Right. And that's really fascinating. And it might also inform the way that you want to take that deck if you do start sprucing up with other abilities. Maybe for that reason, if you know that the strategy when on a budget is going to be a bit more token based or aristocrats based with you know a lot of creatures going wide that might make you want to add cards like anointed procession which will double the number of tokens you make or change the number of tokens uh, and the nature of those tokens with a card like divine visitation if you know that you will be having a lot of those token creating cards when they die like that might actually change the way that you want to take the deck when you start to spruce it up from there so that's just one way that a budget can actually change the nature of the deck which i think is really really cool joey i love how we're talking about the budget version of taste of karlov and you mentioned adding in two $10 cards, which aren't necessarily budget all the fair. time. <laughs> very, very fair. But it is just a way that, you know, once you start improving it, that yes. might be something that informs the way that you start to improve it when the budget does, you know, expand a little bit. Oh, okay. But that is just really fascinating. It moves from one big thing to a whole lot of little things. It goes from looping one creature to an aristocrat strategy more directly, much more uh, obviously aristocratic. And that's just one way that budget can sometimes change filters. That's not the only way, though. Let's talk about another one. We're going to talk about Marchesa the Black Rose, who is a pretty popular commander out of the original Conspiracy set. She's a human wizard that has dethrone. So whenever the creature attacks the player with the most life or tied for the most life, you put a counter on it. She also gives other creatures you control to throne. And whenever a creature you control with a counter on it dies, return that card to the battlefield under your control at the beginning of the next end step. The important part of that is whenever a creature with a plus one counter on it dies, return it to the battlefield under your control. Um, and the reason that's important is when you use the budget filter on Tesa, excuse me, on, on Marchesa, it kind of changes the entire strategy of that deck. The the expensive version of it is running cards like Machaeus Young Hallowed and Glenelendra Archmage, um, cards that tend to run in kind of a combo deck. You're going to use Machaeus to sacrifice something like Glenelendra that's going to come back with the the minus one counter from having a persist on it. And then Machaeus is going to overwrite that with his plus one counter from Undying. So those are two kind of expensive cards, but they're also very combo centric. Once you remove them from the list for budget reasons, though, the deck tends to go from a combo deck to kind of a steel stuff deck. So cards like Mark of Mutiny that goes from 42% to 63%. Uh, Mass Mutiny goes from 24 to 53%. Captivating Crew goes from 36 to 58. Active Treason goes from 21 to 50. And those are all cards that, that let you take control of a creature until end of turn from one of your opponents which you then attack with, it gets the plus one counter on it, you sacrifice it to some kind of a sack outlet, and then it comes back into play under your control. So by using the budget filter, we see kind of a completely different strategic deck from people who Brutesa. Excuse me, Marchesa. I don't know why I keep, keep confusing those. Mistake. They do rhyme, so I'll give you that. I guess. There we go. That's 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 exactly why. But but this is a totally fascinating change. It's actually also, Marchesa could easily be played, whether or not it's going to be combo, Marchesa could easily be played to do sort of like the Coco Show stuff we were just talking about with Tesa, because it would, you know, 
Kokosho, if it got a plus one counter on it, would die, come back, have an amazing trigger, and Marchesa could just repeatedly loop that for amazing abilities. But when the budget is shrinking, you're using a lot more of those cards that you find probably even among draft chaff in the Act of Treason style. Yeah, for sure. And they're still really powerful. And that's my favorite part about what we find when we look through this data. This is not a weak strategy just because the budget is 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 smaller. That is a powerful interaction to take someone else's stuff permanently and get extra value from it. That's amazingly cool. Well, what's interesting then about that is you kind of have the mindset where it, it almost seems like people, because they can run a more expensive strategy, they they do it even if it might not necessarily be stronger. They're running more expensive right. cards in terms of McKay's and Glenelendra, which are that's a, a very effective combo. But I don't know if playing that way is necessarily any better than playing with the, you know, 10 cent mark of mutiny kind of cards. Yeah, it could easily be the case that there's actually one of these strategies that you end up preferring yeah. to the other. And using just budget filters can totally reveal that because the lowest budget Marchesa decks are still doing something that is deviously dastardly and still really, really powerful and might be more to your liking than the Glenelendra or Macias type of stuff. So that's a really fascinating revelation there when we start looking at the low cost cards. So let's move on to another commander here. I'm actually looking here at Golos Tireless Pilgrim. So Golos is a five mana artifact creature. He's a 3-5 legendary artifact creature scout, and a lot of folks are probably familiar with Golos because he's currently the number six most built commander according to the site, with over 2,400 decks to his name. When Golos enters the battlefield, you search your library for any land card and put that card onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. And as if finding any land isn't enough, Golos also has this amazing ability to pay seven mana, which contains the chromatic colors, one of everything. You exile the top three cards of your library and you may play them this turn without paying their mana costs. So for seven mana, you play the top three cards of your deck for free, which is just amazing. And specifically on the wording there, Golos says that you may play them this turn. So if you do exile a land from among the top three, then you can actually play that card because it doesn't specifically say cast. When we start looking at the alterations, when we shrink the budget on Golos, we do find a couple of subtle differences. For example, being on a budget will actually shift things ever slow, ever so slightly in favor of a strategy that is very uniquely five color, and that is Maze's End, which folks will know if you get all 10 of the guild gates into play with the Maze's End, you're going to win the game just totally outright. And specifically, when we look at Golos's regular page and then apply the low budget filter, we see a rise in popularity for Maze's End from 36% to 45% popularity. And not only that, but the support cards for the gate strategy also increase. Securitas Route, for example, can find you two lands, which can include gates, and that rises from 41% popularity to 65% popularity. Gatekeeper Vine is another one that can find you gates, and that rises from 19% to 32%. District Guide also finds you gates. 21% rises into 38% popularity when you're on a budget. And then also Open the Gates, a really small one there, that rises from 18% popularity to 31% popularity. So these are subtle shifts, but I do think that they're really important to note because when built on a budget, Golos is actually slightly more likely to lean into that maze's end strategy because it is a very viable archetype that his natural ramp synergy leans really, really well into without him having to splurge on really expensive spells to cheat into play for free with his ability or without having to splurge on really expensive lands for a five color mana base. Well, in one of the other Golos decks I've seen more than once is uh, basically playing with Valkut instead of 
mazes in, and it's built around Ooh. abusing that particular land. But when you're doing that, then you're adding things like scape shift into the mix. So that again is is a strategy that not only does taking does does doing the budget filter eliminate the coot, you eliminate scape shift, you eliminate you know a, a couple other different cards that are expensive and tied with that strat that don't do any good with Mesa's end. So it, it's kind of the same thing as we saw with Marchesa, where the budget shows an entirely different deck in a lot of ways than the than the one without the budget. Indeed. And here's the other thing I again want to reiterate that like budget doesn't mean less powerful because I'll tell you what, I have been completely blown out by a Maze's End deck with Golos. Yeah. It just completely caught me out of nowhere. It was just like, oh, they have seven gates. I'm not worried. That's not a realistic <laughs> win condition. And then they played a circuitous route into the Maze's End ability, got 10 gates, and I was like, oh, I'm very foolish. I did not give this the time of the day when I absolutely should have been paying attention to that because I didn't even have an answer for it. I didn't have a way to, to stop that. I didn't have any type of way to get rid of the Maze's End, and it completely trounced me just a total blow out of the water. And it's like actually really, really great, and it really works for Golos even when on a budget. Yeah, Golos Gates is probably one of the most obnoxiously fair i guess <laughs> yeah. like ways to just sneak out wins i have been blown out my friend of the podcast andrew cummings one of my best friends has beaten me so many times with just any given gates deck he he, he will make even if it's not golos he'll just make a gates deck and he'll still beat <laughs> me with it somehow and it's so frustrating but yeah it's golos gates is a, a perfect example of it's a five color deck that functions very very well off of a budget and also just has powerful synergies that literally win you games because that's what mace's end does is it literally says what well, you win the game so yeah it's, it's a great way to kind of distinguish price doesn't always necessarily equal power my moldrotha deck is the peak of that i have all the expensive lands the deck is Garbo, so. <laughs> uh, at least you, at least you're aware. I'm it's, fully it's aware. Not just, it's not just Garbo. It's your Garbo. <laughs> it's my Garbo. That's important. <laughs> I, I actually, I had a person ask me at the end of a game, I was wondering when you're going to play any good spells off of that underground sea of yours. Ooh. I didn't have anything to say. Did not. That is. Well, let's go from talking about Garbo to Gargos. Oh, Matt, that can you please take... Our next commander. I'm proud of it, actually. I, I love that transition. Very well played. So Gargos, Vicious Watcher is the next legendary we're going to talk about. Gargos is three green, green, green. So triple green right there in the casting cost for a legendary Hydra. It is an 8-7 with Vigilance that also reads Hydra spells you cast cost four mana less. And also whenever a creature you control becomes the target of a spell, Gargos, Vicious Watcher fights up to one target creature you don't control. So obvious Hydra synergy there, lots of tribal. I mean, it's gonna make everything super cheap, but when you take out the more expensive cards you get onto the budget, it kind of shifts into like a cheap, very cost efficient, I should say, ways to just trigger that fight clause on Gargos, and then you can start picking off everything, and then the Hydra synergies kind of fades to black a little bit. So you get cards like Withstand Death, which is just a single green to make target creature indestructible till end of turn. It rises from 42% popularity to 79%, so a huge jump when you start looking at all the budget cards. Ranger's Guile, which is another quick protection spell, goes from 24% to 75%. Then even Snake Umbra goes from 20% popularity to 70%. There's so many ways just to, to get all that kind of stuff triggered. And then Season of Growth also gets a huge amount of growth, I should say. Uh, it's that enchantment that whenever a creature enters the battlefield, you scry one, and then whenever you cast a spell that targets a creature you control, you draw a card. So perfect when you're casting all these small little spells to trigger all the fight clauses. 
Season of Growth grows from 34% popularity to a whopping 82% popularity in Gargos decks when you start looking at all the cheaper versions. That is a huge indicator right there that you've moved from the Hydra Tribal, which can still be present on the page, but like Season of Growth rising that much is really telling you that the like you're leaning a lot more into the fighting ability than necessarily just the hydras. That is a really big thing right there. Yeah, and it and it, it makes a lot of sense too because you have very very good hydras like Colonian Hydra, but that costs you know ten dollars or more now. Lifeblood Hydra isn't cheap, or even Mana Gorger Hydra, which it's one of those more cost efficient when it comes to mana hydras. But that's not even a cheap card anymore either. So it it makes sense that if you're playing Gargos, you're just trying to kind of churn through your deck, trigger all the fight clauses, and then just pick everybody off. And then Season of Growth, like we said, just draw all the cards. And specifically, this is actually a thing that I think will matter not just for the person who's playing a budget Gargos deck, but also people, if you're up against a budget Gargos deck, you should actually statistically be more afraid of Gargos fighting your utility creatures if the Gargos player is on a budget, because they are clearly run at a slightly higher percentage for Gargos to run like targeting spells that will allow it to fight. So you should actually be more afraid of removal when you're up against budget Gargos. That's a weird thing you see in Commander sometimes, where you see somebody maybe make a deck that is technically worse sometimes, but they really want to build that Hydra Tribal deck, so they're willing to spend more money and buy a Colonial Hydra or whatever, even if that deck might not be as good as the budget version that's just going to generate cheap fight effects. Right. And I'm not even sure which one of those is like yeah. inherently more powerful, but like it is a thing to be aware of that there is an element about this strategy that has changed a little bit. And if you are using Gargos as more of the fighty type of commander, then that might actually be a bit more of a commander damage win than an I'm going to assemble a huge army of Hydras to kill you with a bunch of creatures. Like because Gargos on a fight spell version would actually be more like clearing the way of individual blockers for Gargos to be the main damage dealer. Like that fundamentally changes the strategy depending on which one is your preference or whichever one you perceive to be more powerful. That is just a substantial shift that can actually really, really matter. All right, before we get to the ways that high budgets will affect strategies, we want to pause real quick and deal with one of our favorite segments. That's challenging the stats. There's a bunch of information here on Trek, but we don't always agree with all of the data here. Sometimes we think that cards are overplayed. Sometimes we think that cards are underplayed. So what we'd like to do is challenge those statistics. DNF, do you mind starting us off this week on Challenge the Stats? Absolutely. So I'm going to start with a card that sees play in 1,700 decks, and that's Berserk from the original Alpha set. Um, Berserk's a fantastic way to just kill somebody, one green mana, and it doubles a creature's power till end of turn, and that creature then is destroyed. Um, but I'm not really here to argue Berserk should be played in more decks, although it should, but it's it's $20 and I get why people aren't running it. Um, I want to talk about three kind of very similar budget versions of Berserk in red that are all in about 300 decks. There's Fatal Frenzy, uh, Overblaze, and Rush of Blood. And they're basically cheap budget versions of Berserk. Fatal Frenzy until end of turn target creature you control gains Trample and plus X plus O where X is its power. So it gives you a way to basically, like Berserk, double a creature's power. And you sack it at the end of turn. Overblaze. Uh, whenever a permanent would deal damage to a creature or a player this turn, it deals double that damage, and that's any permanent, so it's not just a creature. And um, the last one is Rush of Blood, where a creature gets plus X plus O to end a turn, where X is its power, so functionally it doubles that creature's power as well. Um, those are in 300 decks, all of them, all three of those cards. 
functionally 0% of decks that can run them. And if you're in a deck that wants a berserk kind of effect or that's taking extra combat steps or is using double strike, all three of those are really, really good cards and they see almost no play. The double strike and the extra combats in particular, when you said that, that's when my ears really perked up Yeah, because those power buffs aren't just one time. They do sustain throughout the entire turn. So in extra combat, you will get twice as much utility out of these things. And I also think we've probably all had that time where we're like, ah, I can probably take, you know, the Xenagos player played a 10-10, doubled it to a 20-20. You know what? I'm at 40. I'm sure I can take this one hit. It's big, but it's not like I'm going to die. And a single one of the spells that you just mentioned would absolutely instant speed, yep. like completely ruin our total day. trap, total trap. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Matt, how about your challenge? So my challenge, I'm going to hearken back to one of our very first episodes. Uh, episode 14, we did a, a, a brew off with Najila the Blade Blossom, and we challenged Cryptolith Rite in Najila decks. So Najila the Blade Blossom is the uh, legendary warrior from Battlebond where it makes all sorts of different combat steps and, and warriors left and right. It gets out of hand. It's a very combo-heavy deck. But people were playing Cryptolith Rite, and we kind of thought it was overplayed because the warriors that Najila puts into play come into play tapped, which means you can't use them with Cryptolith Rite because they are tapped. They're not going to be able to tap for mana that turn. Thankfully, people listen to us, and we're not playing Cryptolith Rite near as much anymore on EDHREC's page. But what I've kind of seen creeping up instead is a card that kind of similarly functions that I think is also being overplayed. So Song of Freilis is that card for me this week. Uh, Song of Freilis is one in a green, and it's a saga that has the first two chapters are until your next turn. Creatures you control gain tap to add one mana of any color. And then on the third chapter, you put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. Those creatures gain vigilance, trample, and indestructible until end of turn. So it's a kind of a nice set everything up for the next couple turns, and then you kind of get a baby overrun type of effect. I understand why people would want to be playing that type of a card similar to Cryptolithrite. It's it's a good card, but I don't think it does what you want to be doing. It telegraphs what you're doing so much to the other players that they basically have two turns to make sure that overrun doesn't happen because they know what you're building towards and when you are going to be doing it more specifically. It's showing up in 22% of Najila decks. And I think that number is too high. If you're wanting that type of overrun effect, then you're probably better off just playing a coat of arms because that's going to come out of nowhere and suddenly win you the game as just the biggest overrun effect or an Eldrazi monument or anything like that. I think what Song of Freilis does is it telegraphs your upcoming plays far too much and gives people a countdown to prepare for it. That's not really what you want to be doing. You want to be as efficient as possible, especially if you're trying to combo people off. You want to be doing it quickly, not waiting two turns to actually be doing it. And that's why I think Song of Freilis is overplayed in Agila decks currently. You just mentioned two other pump spells that you could use in place of them, Eldrazi Monument, Coat of Arms, which are maybe a bit pricey. Another thing that folks could use instead of the Song of Freilis, if they are looking for a big burst of damage, would be that Mercadia's Downfall card that you talked about the other week, because that instant speed way to suddenly the army's really, really lethal and doesn't telegraph anything in advance, and you don't have that awkward relationship between creatures being tapped for mana or not. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, just anything that you can come out of nowhere, that's going to be so much more powerful because your opponents won't know if you have it in your back pocket or not. It's not time restricted on your end, too, if you don't want to use it right away. You don't have to. Song of Freilis, you do. 
Indeed. The challenge that I have for this week also involves some timing stuff, although that's not the main reason that I like it. What I'm looking for, since we were talking about budget on this particular episode, I looked for a budget version of one of my all-time favorite cards, and my all-time favorite cards, that happens to be Living Death, which folks are definitely going to know by now because it switches all creatures in graveyards with all creatures in play. It's worded a little bit more complicatedly, but basically that's the main effect of it. All the creatures in play are in the graveyard now, and all the creatures that were in the graveyard are in play now. I love me some mass reanimation. It's amazing. This can be a powerhouse spell when I am reviving multiple creatures from the graveyard, because as any good necromancer knows, even if this effect is symmetrical, I've got the best graveyard, and I'm getting the best bonuses from this living death spell. Oh, it's beautiful every time that I play it. It's my favorite card to see, but it's also like $5. And there's a version of this spell that is like 35 cents, and that is Twilight's Call. This is a card that I have challenged in a way previous episode, but it is still horrendously underplayed, which is why I'm challenging it again, because Twilight's Call is just so dang good. It is a six mana sorcery that can actually be cast as an instant if you pay an extra two mana. And the main ability is just that every player returns all creatures from their graveyard to the battlefield. It's so, so good, and you can actually occasionally do some instant speed trickery with it if you absolutely need to. You know, in response to someone's really evil scavenger grounds, for example, you can flash out the Twilight's Call to get the creatures back before the scavenger grounds exiles all those creatures. But it's also just an amazing double up on an amazing card. Living Death tends to be one of my main finishers in my necromancy strategies, and Twilight's Call does almost exactly the same thing. It is such a powerful card and it's only like 35 cents, but worse than that, it's only in 935 decks total. When comparing that to Living Death, which shows up in 1300 decks, that's just, oh no, I can't deal with it. Twilight's Call is amazing and definitely needs to see more numbers along the lines of Living Death and not be stuck at the 900 deck range. It is very, very powerful, very budget friendly and very, very amazing when you're able to pull it off. It's so good. And I just think that those stats should be a, a lot more aligned. See, I hope when you cast the spell, Joey, somebody else plays a similar card where you can pay two more to cast it as though it had flash. And that's route. I hope you get routed. Put those creatures <laughs> right back in the graveyard where they belong. It's very, very mean of you. You're a mean man, Mr. Well, Joey, I will say this. Anytime I've seen someone play Twilight's Call, the deck always winds up being very... Um, very worrisome because that means they've done a deep dive. So it's not even a card that I think I see as a budget replacement. It's just a card I see when someone's really dug deep and put a bunch of those kind of effects in their deck. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. it's very it's, much a bellwether for a, a, a tuned deck of that sort. Oh, it's, it's so, so good. It's absolutely amazing. But we can't just talk about these and, and budget stuff. We actually have to move on now to the second part of the show. And that is when examining how a high budget can affect a deck's strategy. And, I guess really quick what we should do is actually lay out one of the most classic examples that people will probably see when they use the expensive filter and look at the top 10% most expensive decks for any given commander. Um, the most classic example of this is probably going to be Prosh, Skyraider of Care, who has over a thousand decks to his name. And Prosh is really, really powerful. As Sheldon said on our episode 100, the folks who made Prosh probably know that it might have been a bit of, mis of a mistake. Prosh is a six mana flying dragon, and when you cast Prosh, you create X01 red kobold creature tokens, named kobolds of care keep, where X is the amount of mana that you spent to cast Prosh. Not only that, but Prosh is also a sacrifice outlet where you can sacrifice another creature to give Prosh plus one plus O oh until end of turn. 
This is a really powerful card. If you pair it with anything that deals damage when creatures enter the battlefield, such as a Perforos God of the Forge, it is devastatingly good. But that's also a really expensive, you know, card right there, Perforos. Not everyone has that type of budget. But when you are tuning up to a budget, a really important data piece points itself out, and that is the increased popularity of the card Food Chain. Food Chain is a three mana enchantment that allows you to exile the creature you control to provide mana equal to that creature's uh, casting cost plus one. So Prosh can be played, create a bunch of kobolds, and then you can exile all of those creatures, including Prosh, put Prosh back into the command zone, and get more mana than you had to begin with, infinitely casting Prosh for more and more mana, just sending him back to the command zone over and over and over again. As its natural state, when you're looking at Prosh's main EDH rec page, Food Chain and that particular combo, that shows up in 44% of the over 1,000 Prosh lists. But when we start looking at high budget, the expensive decks, Food Chain raises up a lot. It goes from 44% popularity to 91% popularity. So it's not just using Prosh as a value engine anymore. When you tune up on a high budget, Prosh is much more likely to move into combo. And that is actually a trend that we see across a fair number of commanders, but Prosh is probably one of the more shining examples of how a combo element really starts to reveal itself when a high budget starts to be applied. As another example, um, one of my other podcast co-hosts plays a Brago King Eternal deck. Um, Brago's a pretty popular commander who, when he deals combat damage, you can basically blink permanents you control. And if you just do a normal search of Brago, you see Stronic Resonator in 67% of decks. Resonator is a card that for two mana, you can copy a triggered ability. So if you look at what you what you a lot of times see in a Brago deck, and I've seen this happen plenty, is when Brago swings in, you get that Brago trigger on the stack to blink something. You tap something like your Grim Monolith, for example, to add mana to your pool. You use that mana to copy Brago's trigger with the Tronic Resonator, and Resonator trigger resolves. You can use the, the Vault to untap with mana and basically get a loop going where you generate infinite mana using Resonator triggers repeatedly with the Grim Monolith trigger. And basically generate infinite mana that you're presumably going to use to, at instant speed, you know, mill somebody out or force them to draw 100 cards or, or do whatever with. Um, because of that combo, though, Grim Monolith is a $100 card and Resonator isn't cheap either. So when you use the expensive filter, Resonator rises about 10% in popularity. It goes from 67% to 77, but Grim Monolith goes from 12% to 76. So Oof. that's a giant jump you get in in price level once you use that filter of people that are when they don't have a budget concern they're running that combo right and that's an insane way and it's probably just because like Grim Monolith does make a lot of sense untapping it quote unquote blinking it really with Brago is a great way to untap it so that you don't have to you know pay any of its costs or what have you. Um, and it also just on its own is a really quick way to provide enough extra mana with the Strionic Resonator triggers, provide more mana when you untap quote unquote by blinking that Strionic Resonator. The combo is totally easy to do with just those minimal number of cards. You can do it with other just regular mana rocks if, that are slightly cheaper, but you would need more of them. Grim Monolith is a really classic example of just one card that is crazy expensive to make that combo that much easier. And that rise is really important if you're looking at the expensive Brago decks. They are 
clearly leaning very directly into that combo strategy in a ways that the regular Brago list is probably not doing. Yeah, yes, for sure. And another one, you also see stasis jump in popularity from 18% to 53%. Winter Orb jumps from 19 to 57. Also really good cards with Brago right there. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. What I keep hearing is all these cards that seem to be in the expensive Brago decks, I don't want to play against. <laughs> so it's your, your, your buddy Max, Max, I love you. You are a scumbag a little bit for these cards. Self-appointed scumbag. <laughs> Self-appointed, yes, yes. You're, you're fully aware of your shortcomings. With shortcomings, wow. I mean, it's a really insane combo list. Yeah. Like, these are actually really, in, like, these are, these are clearly very powerful strategies, and it's good to know about them, and that is really what we wanted to highlight with these particular examples, is that these are certainly prominent, but they're not the only ways that an expensive uh, filter, that an expensive version of these commanders is going to be shaped, that their strategy will be altered. It's not always going to necessarily just be combo or stacks or tapping down everyone else's resources and only Brago can blink and untap his resources. It's not just those. We do have other examples that we wanted to take a look at when we see how a high budget actually changes their strategy in a different way beyond just combo. So Matt, Walk us through one of those. So the one that I'm going to talk about is Sir Gwyn, Hero of Asheville. That's one of the new uh, pre-con commanders that we got from Throne of Eldraine. Thro uh, Sir Gwyn, Hero of Asheville, so that Mardu knight commander, has Vigilance and Menace. Whenever an equipped creature you control attacks, draw a card and you lose one life. And then equipment you control have equip knight of zero mana. So if you look at the typical page, there's a lot of knight tribal synergy. You have stuff like Knight Exemplar and, and Ariel Knight of Windgrace and Valiant Knights and all those types of effects. But when you look through the expensive filter, you actually get a, a pretty different looking deck. You get more of an equipment focused deck with a lot of kind of those 60 card, very, very powerful effects because they are the best of the best when it comes to getting the powerful equipments. You have stuff like SRAM, Senior uh, Edificer, goes from 44% to 55%. Stoneforge Mystic, which is the formerly banned in modern good, where whenever the Stoneforge Mystic enters the battlefield, you look for an equipment and put it into your hand, that goes from 26% to 77%. So you are getting all the best equipments all of a sudden with this tutor on a stick. Sigarda's Aid goes up from 57 to 73% when you look at the expensive decks. And then all these different kind of knights, tribal uh, effects, those go down quite a bit. You have stuff like Ariel Knight of Windgrace drops from 65% to 41%. Valiant Knight goes down from 56% to th only a third of decks at 33%. And then even Knight's Charge goes from 78% of decks to 56% when you look at all the expensive decks. So some of that Knight tribal stuff gets pushed out. Maybe it's a Voltron, maybe it's an equipment-centered deck that kind of rises to the top. Because you do get a, a better access to more equipment, you're probably getting more sort of fire and ice and sort of X and Y compared to maybe some of the cheaper, you know, bone saws or anything like that that you might have laying around when you start looking at, you know, budget as not really that much of a, an impediment to the deck anymore. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how those equipments, they jump up so much, and that's kind of the preferred way if you are spending more money on the deck when it comes to Sir Gwyn. Right. This isn't you know, a combo. This isn't, you know, no. keeping people's stuff down. It's not a food chain or a winter orb or anything like that. This is a genuine shift from a tribal strategy to a Voltron strategy. That's a really big, important thing. That is a really important thing for you to know. If you are starting to tune up your list and you're used to Sir Gwyn being a, you know, a, a night tribal list, 
and that's an identity that you want to maintain, that is the kind of thing that you'll have to look out for as you begin to expand within that list if you do want to keep those strategies or if when you are tempted by the higher budget versions, you know, you start seeing data that fundamentally represents a different style entirely. That is the kind of thing that you should know when you're actually tuning things up, that it could actually maybe tempt you to lean into a totally different direction. That is a huge thing. From Tribal to Voltron, that one totally floors me. Yeah, even the tutors in the deck change when you look at the more expensive lists. You, you, you When you have the more expensive decks, you guess you have the, the equipments in there that's kind of the more bigger focus. But then you also have Steel Shaper's Gift as kind of your tutor of choice because it just finds any equipment and puts it into your hand rather than you know any kind of diabolic tutor type of effect because it's just that much more better to have efficient options. Choose to say more better. More better, more gooder, <laughs> most bestest. All right, I think we've got time for one other example. Dana, what's another commander whose strategy changes a bit when we start looking at a higher budget rather than the normal budget? Uh, Tuvasa the Sunlit, who is the Bant Enchantment commander we got a couple of years back. She's in 1,500 decks. And of course, Tuvasa gets stronger when there are enchantments put on her. And the the deck has a full suite of the enchantresses you would expect to see that draw you a card when you cast an enchantment. There's Verdurn Enchantress, there's Seder Enchantress, there's Mesa Enchantress. Um, there's also a lot of auras that buff Tuvasa up a bunch. There's Ethereal Armor at 43% of those decks, Ancestral Mask at 42. Those are auras that also make Tuvasa stronger based on the number of enchantments or auras in play. You have Nylea's Colossus that doubles the power of a creature when enchantment comes into play. Bear Umbra that makes your creature stronger and untaps your land, so this kind of functionally ramp. But when you use the expensive filter, the enchantresses don't change, which makes sense, I guess. People still want to draw cards, but the specific auras change. Uh, Bear Umbra drops from 54% to 32%. Nylea's Colossus drops from, from 44 to 15 It's not an aura, it's an enchantment creature, but it kind of functions the same way. Ethereal Armor drops from 43 to 28 Ancestral Mask drops from 42 to 24 um, but the cards that rise in popularity, you see Aura of Silence go from 38 to 60, you see Grasp of Fate go from 26 to 40, and you see Song of the Dryads go from 28 to 54%. And those are all removal auras, essentially. So basically, as Tuvasa's budget rises, the answers and the interaction become more sophisticated. And since every answer she plays powers her up anyway, people don't probably feel the pressure to run something like Ancestral Mask or Three Armor to, to kind of maybe even overkill how much damage she does. That is also a very fascinating change. The nature of the deck is still very much that Tufasa is probably going to be your win condition, but you're not spending specific card slots on pumping her up when your answers can do that for you. So she's become a lot more controlling. That's also quite fascinating, and it's yeah. really important to know. Like, I actually still totally love Ancestral Mask. I think that is a powerhouse card that I wouldn't personally want to remove from my Tuvasa list. But I can see how if you're already controlling the board enough already with those other answer type cards, like you mentioned with the Aura of Silence or the Song of the Dryads, if you're already controlling the board perfectly well anyway, then it does kind of make sense that Tuvasa is going to be able to kill them regardless of the extra pump up that would be that would be provided by one of those big auras. So it, that is like also a really fascinating thing to see that the nature of pumping up the commander changes to a more controlling strategy when the budget increases. Yeah, I think it's a situation where, you know, you, you've, I think we've discussed this in the past where like 
maybe extra life you have at the end of the game is is a resource you didn't use to a degree. It's kind of the same thing here. Extra damage you deal to a player who you're going to kill anyway is a resource you didn't need to spend to get it to that point. And I think as budgets go up, you will become more conscious of those kind of things to a degree. It's extra damage you didn't need to spend, but man, attacking for 40 with one two Vasa, it, it is pretty sweet, not going to lie. All right, before we leave, there is one final thing that I do want to mention, and this when researching the data for this show, this is actually moving back to the way that a low budget might affect a deck. This is the funniest thing that I could possibly find uh, when we were looking through, and it actually involves a combo that, Dana, you talked about on episode 99 when we were looking at low and high variance commanders. Specifically, I'm looking at the page for Sadisi Undead Vizier, which has about 200 decks or so, and can be used as a tutor. It exploits a creature, including potentially Sadisi herself, when it enters the battlefield, and that can go and find you a card from your deck. Specifically, the combo that you walked through, Dana, I'm actually going to pass this back off to you because I still... I'll confess, don't quite understand how this combo works, uh, but Sadisi has a weird combo build that it is actually able to do, and that reveals itself here in the budget data. But first, walk us through what that combo is. Sure. So you use Sadisi to go find Ad Nauseam, which you cast, and Ad Nauseam, you reveal cards at the top of your library, and you can put them into your hand and take damage equal to the card CMC. So the deck runs a gazillion swamps, and you just repeatedly draw all those swamps for no damage to fill your hand up with swamps. There's a card called Dark Sphere in there, which is a zero drop artifact that you can sacrifice to prevent the damage you take from a single source uh, or, or actually cut it in half. So that does no damage to you. Basically, you're digging down until you have a fistful of swamps and one other card in the deck, which is called Sickening Dreams. And that's a spell you can cast. And for every land you discard, everyone takes damage equal to the amount of land. So then you pitch this entire fistful of lands to deal, you know, 40 damage to the table, crack your dark sphere to only take half, everyone dies and you're at 20. So this is the the jankiest. It's yeah, hilarious. It's I love this. this is, deck. And, and it totally reveals itself when I was actually looking through the data because apparently it's actually not all that uncommon. When I was looking at Sadisi's average page, I saw that she actually seems to run an average of 49 lands. And it was like, oh, that's actually really quite high compared to what we know tends to be the averages around 37, 36, between 36 and 38 usually. Um, I'm like, oh, that's really high. It must be as a result of the fact that some Sadisi players are actually playing this combo with a bunch of lands and that's being averaged out against other players who are playing Sadisi along the more normal line. So that 49 is an average between the really high amounts and the really low or more normal amounts. And then I used the budget filter. I was curious. I clicked on Sadisi's page and I used the budget filter to see how it moves. Sadisi's average pie chart moved from an average of 49 lands to 91 lands <laughs> when I used the budget filter <laughs> looking at just the budget data for Sadisi because they are clearly leaning into exactly the strategy, that combo that you just explained, which I just think is hilarious. I could not find another jump that was that dramatic <laughs> in terms of how big a deck shifts. Budget can totally shape the strategy of your deck and nowhere is that clearer with this one jinky weird combo but it was just it was so hilarious that I, I just really I had to share it because of how much fun it was. Joey if it makes you feel better the original version of this deck that had Marilyn of the Morn Song does the exact same thing too and Marilyn is basically on her page too. On her page yeah if you look at the regular awesome. decks 65 lands in the average deck you go to the expensive 49 lands but if you go to the cheap page 95 lands and it is playing that exact <laughs> strategy of we're gonna play ad nauseum and sickening dreams and do that just ugh. this format it's, is the best 
This for, it's so good. <laughs> this format is super fun. And like the interesting part is when you look at Marilyn's main page, there's an, a version of the deck, the Ad Nauseam deck, that also costs $1,300 to build. But ah. playing the same thing. It's, oh, it's Dana, you said it well. This format's the best. Right. And that's, that's just it. Like that is a really dramatic example of how a strategy can be affected by a budget. But really what we wanted to linger on is not specifically that a budget always is an inherent property to whether your deck is powerful. A lot of the fun stuff that we talked about was actually in the shrinking of the budget down to the low budget. For example, with Marchesa using a lot more of the theft effects and sacrificing opponent's creatures to steal them. Like, I think that's awesome. And it's totally available to you on a budget. Knowing the scope of the cards that you're able to play with can totally change the way that your deck plays and it might not necessarily look like the average deck or like someone else's deck based on your budget and it's just good to be aware of how those means can actually affect the deck or reveal different strategies to you and as you begin to tune them or if you detune your deck that might actually change the way that it tends to play and those are just things that are really worthwhile to be aware of so that you can also shape your play styles around those factors as well it's a really fun exercise to look through but man 91 lands with Sidisi. i'm just never going to get over that and <laughs> Anyway, with that, I think we ought to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank you guys so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on Twitch and also on the Twitter at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach, and you can hear me on my other podcast a couple times a week, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDH RecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question, a keen insight to EDH Rec's data, or maybe your own challenge to stats pick that you want us to know about, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Huge thanks again to Josh Lequai and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And thanks as well to EDH Rec sponsor CardKingdom.com. If you are interested in picking up any of these cards that we talked about, whether you're on a high budget or on a low budget, you can visit cardkingdom.com slash to get those awesome cards and help support the show. We will be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Wreck your deck.